You're listening to Jewish Matters with Rabbi Jonathan Feldman. Good evening and welcome to Exodus Unveiled, third part, third chapter, and part two. We're now going to do tonight a more in-depth question. And the question we're going to be addressing is, how do we know that the Exodus happened? And a number of years ago, uh, seven, eight years ago, one of the most prominent conservative rabbis got up in a synagogue before Passover, Rabbi David Wolpe, and he said, folks, sorry to let you know the truth, but the Exodus never happened. Now, how could it be that a prominent rabbi got to that place? And the question is, do we have evidence of the Exodus outside of the Torah? And because that question was a lingering one, historians, even some rabbis, wanted to lean to the side to say that, well, since we don't have the evidence, we have to question whether it even happened. And in history, there is a big dilemma. Is absence of evidence evidence of absence? In other words, if I have absence of evidence, I don't have archaeological finds that show me evidence, does that mean the event never happened? Can I assume that? And the fact is that there are many different historical events that do not have strong evidence, archaeological evidence of having happened, but are described in literary texts or in history books, and historians accept them as fact. Um, the Celts migrating to Asia Minor, uh, the Slavs in Greece, the Arameans going across the Middle East, even conquests like Anglo-Saxons in Britain in the fifth century. Very little evidence of that. Uh, Arabs coming into Palestine in the seventh century. Very little archeological evidence. And yet it's accepted as fact in the historical canon. So why? All of a sudden, does the Bible become disqualified as a historical text? And what we're going to do is we're going to delve deeper, in fact, show uh, what evidence there is, because there's not a lack of any evidence. And we'll also deal with some other interesting questions. Who was the Pharaoh of the Exodus? And uh, some of the other uh, background questions and picture of Egyptian history around the time when the Jews were there. So let's look at, first of all, the larger historical picture that is depicted in the Torah and see how that lines up. So in uh, Egyptian history, particularly around, uh, now we call this the Middle Kingdom, and we're looking at the middle of the second millennia BCE. So around the 1500s, 1400s, 1200s BCE in Egypt. And there were migrations of people from the north. In fact, they became so strong that at one point the Hyksos uh, invaded and took over the empire. And this actually corresponds with Exodus 110, where the Egyptians were concerned. They said, you know, if if there is a war, they will join our enemies and fight against us, driving us out of the land. Who would the war be against? The tribes, Semitic tribes from the north who were coming into Egypt. And it's understandable that they would think maybe these Hebrews would ally with them. 
those immigrants who came tended to settle in the Nile Delta, which is the area of Goshen, where Jacob and his sons were settled, and the Jewish people then grew into a people and lived. And uh, the other thing to point out is that um, uh, these immigrant peoples coming from the north in Egypt were all referred to as Asiatics. In other words, they didn't distinguish ethnically from the different ones. So people say in the United States, oh, there's immigrants from South America. They're not distinguishing Colombians from Uruguayans, from Central Americans. So they were bundled all together. Now, the other uh, parallel, which has actually a archaeological source is, and this is from Professor Malamut from Hebrew University. He uh, identified a papyrus from the year 1250, which says, distribute grain rations to soldiers and to the Habiru who carry stones to the great pylon of the great city of Ramses. Okay, the Habiru, could, be, could that be Hebrew, Ivri? Um, and even if it's referring to a larger ethnic group, um, this corresponds exactly to what the Hebrews were doing. So first of all, I have to break the news to you. I'm very sorry to tell you that we did not build the pyramids, despite what the pictures in your childhood Haggadah might show you. The pyramids were built approximately a thousand years before the Jews uh, were enslaved in Egypt. And the, the pyramids were not built by slaves. On the other hand, if you even look at the picture behind me, you'll see a picture of bricks being made. You see there, the slaves building the bricks, picking them up. Oops, I just got lost here. And um, we also have pictures of uh, taskmasters pushing the workers. Now, were those slaves, were those Hebrews? Also, many of these slaves tend to have a darker complexion. And uh, is that because they're out in the sun? Is that because they had a darker complexion than the Egyptians? There's a big tumult now over uh, Gal Gadot being cast as Cleopatra. And Cleopatra, who is much later in Egyptian history, actually wasn't even Egyptian. She was Macedonian from the area of Greece. So um, the movie... Uh, uh, studios were lambasted for casting an Israeli as an Egyptian, as an Arab, when Cleopatra wasn't Arab. So, um, so the whole question of ethnic origin is a complicated one. But suffice it to say that there were people coming from in the north. There's possibly even a text that identifies the Hebrews. So Exodus 1.11 tells us the Israelite built the, the cities of Pitom and Ramses. Now, uh, we know that at the time, King Ramses built an enormous uh, administrative area called P. Ramses, built from mud brick, which is what is described the Hebrews working with, not carved limestone like the pyramids were built with. And could P. Ramses be Pitom and Ramses? And it does correspond to this time period. Now. Who was, the, um, who was the pharaoh of the Torah? 
And this question has always bothered me because why does the Torah just call him Pharaoh? I mean, certainly now we call, you know, we speak, talk about President Biden. We call, talk about uh, uh, leaders by their names. However, interestingly enough, who isn't referred that way very often? The Queen of England. She'll just be called the Queen of England. So in ancient Egypt, Paro was known as Paro. They did not adopt their name, even though they had names, but it wasn't commonly used uh, to identify them, to praise them in those contexts. So even that, we're going to show that the some of the usages of even of language and of the terminology and of the Egyptian um, uh, Egyptian realia corresponds in the Torah to what was existing then. According to this, and many historians do want to identify the Pharaoh of the Exodus as Ramses the second. More about that in a minute. Now, another way that we identify uh, the authenticity of the Torah's account of the Jews' stay in Egypt, because that's what we're doing. We're really in showing, first of all, the dating of the ascetic story going back to the period, to that same period, even though many biblical critics will try to argue that the Torah was written much later. We're going to give evidence that it was written as a contemporary document. That's the first point. Uh, the second point is that we're going to find parallels between the, in the biblical text and in the biblical account to realia of the Egyptian time. So um, some of the terms used. Uh, we see that God takes the Jewish people out with Yad Chazaka Uzra with a strong arm and an, uh, a strong hand and an outstretched arm. Kind of interesting term, and I always chalked it up to kind of what I call biblical English or biblical imagery and usage. But very interestingly, uh, the pharaohs uh, were described as having a mighty hand and carrying out acts with an outstretched arm. And this is what we, what we could call cultural ap appropriation. Maimonides in the Guide for the Perplexed uh, looks at and uh, recognizes that there are times the Torah is responding to speaking within the context of the world that the Egyptian, that the Jewish slaves knew in Egypt. So he identifies certain commandments to take the Jews away from the practices of the Egyptians. Nachmanides points out that the Passover lamb that is slaughtered was deified, and it is the astrological sign of the month when the Jews left Egypt. So kind of nullifying the Egyptian belief in uh, the lamb being a god, and in uh, the month of Aries uh, having power over the Jews. So this is the cultural parallels and appropriation. So the terms used for the Pharaoh, uh, another striking one, which has been pointed out by biblical scholars years ago, is that uh, there is a very famous event that happened in the times of Ramses II, which was the battle at Karnak against the Assyrians, their uh, enemy. And it's almost as if uh, it was an account of uh, Pearl Harbor, although uh, the Egyptians won, so Battle of the Bulge. And it was uh, represented 
in numerous hieroglyphics and numerous images throughout uh, Ramses's building campaign, which was extensive. In that, those image, that imagery, which you can see actually in the British Museum, the Barreliefs were moved there, there is a picture of Ramses's camp. And his camp has striking parallels to the camp that the Jewish people set up upon leaving Egypt, to the tabernacle, as it's called, the Mishkan, the portable temple. First of all, the camp itself around it uh, is made up of an area twice as long as it is wide. The uh, entrance is to the east, all paralleling the Jewish camp. Uh, the, The smaller enclosed area with a roof uh, within that camp is proportionate three to one, its length to to its width, which is the same as the Jewish camp. It had two rooms, an outer reception room and an inner tent uh, for the throne where you met the king, which would parallel the actual building of the tent of meeting in the Jewish camp, where you had the outer room, which had the menorah, and uh, other implements. And then the inner room, the Kodesh HaKadoshim, the inner sanctuary, which had the Ark, which is in a sense where you met the king, where the divine presence was, where the high priest went in once a year. And the other parallel is that he had four divisions of soldiers camped around the camp in the four directions, north, south, east, west. So striking parallels between the camp. Now, how do we understand this? So the Torah is appropriating the cultural known uh, usages uh, or architecture of the time and putting it within a Jewish divine sanctified purpose, right? And this is an interesting question. Is there a unique Jewish ascetic? Uh, Probably not. King Solomon brought in craftsmen from Lebanon to build his temple and the styles that are identified from that are parallel to Middle Eastern styles of the neighbors, of the neighboring uh, peoples. Now, to continue along these parallels with uh, Ramses' battle at Karnak, we also have a song of celebration that was written where the troops break ranks at the sight of the enemy. Uh, Ramses asks for divine help, and he's told to move forward to victory. Parallels to uh, the Shiratayam, uh, the song by the sea that Moshe composed after the splitting of the Red Sea and the destruction of the Egyptian army. In both accounts, there are corpses floating in the water. Afterwards, they offer a victory hymn with, that talks about the strong arm and attribute the source of strength and salvation to, uh, to greater power. And the enemy is described as being consumed like chaff. Now, this poem was widely circulated at the time, but not afterwards. So how would Israelites, hundreds of years later in the land of Israel, know about such poems? So here we have another parallel. Now, another fact stated in the Torah is that it says God did not lead the Jewish people along the direct route Uh, the way of the kings to the land of Israel, lest they encounter resistance and turn back. And sure enough, there's archaeological evidence of encampments uh, along the coastal road, which they did not do. They went down into the Sinai Peninsula. So 
all of this is larger context, but you might still ask, well, is there direct evidence? Uh, Professor uh, Malamat, we mentioned, quoted the Hapiru. He also um, identified a mountain in the southern Negev that had certain inscriptions. Now, people ask this. They ask, what about, you know, if you had 2 million Jews traveling through the Sinai Desert, where's the evidence? And as we said before, uh, nomadic movements of people, nomads, train themselves not to leave behind evidence because they can be tracked if they do and attacked. Also, most of the archaeological remains from the ancient times, certainly they wouldn't be uh, carving stones, but most of them, um, the daily remain, archaeological remains are earthenware vessels. Uh, nomads tend to not to want to carry earthenware vessels with her heavy. And the Torah even describes them using skins as vessels to hold liquids. So it's not surprising, once again, that we do not have direct archaeological evidence, but Professor Malmat wants to identify uh, certain rock drawings and paintings that have uh, boxes with five lines in each box, in two boxes, a squiggle and a line, uh, the box in the five lines, you'd imagine, is the uh, tablets with the Ten Commandments. The line and the squiggle is the staff and the snake. Um, interesting, interesting possibility. Can we prove it? Not clear. We do have two other uh, interesting um, direct archaeological mentions. Uh, the first is the Mernefta Mer, Stella, which is an Egyptian clay tablet, which was written, which was uh, composed after the Egyptian victories to the north. And it says specifically, uh, Ashkelon is carried off, Gezer is seized, and this is the important one, Israel is laid waste. So we know that shortly after the Exodus period, we do have identified the people of Israel in the land of Israel in the 1100s, in the 12th century BCE. And that is direct, factual, uh, tangible evidence. The other piece of evidence is a very fascinating one. People often ask, well, what about the plagues? What about the 10 plagues? So... There is a papyrus that was found. By the way, one of the other archaeological challenges is that most Egyptian documents which were written on papyrus no longer exist, that they uh, disintegrated into the desert, and we only have the stone inscriptions, which were the royal descriptions of their great battles over their enemies, not of slave rebellions leaving. Um, but here's the Eputer papyrus. Plague is throughout the land. Blood is everywhere. The river is blood. What is with our water? What is with our happiness? All is ruined. Trees are destroyed. Nor, no fruit nor herbs are found. The plague of locusts specifically describes that. Um, all the animals, their hearts weep. The cattle moan. We know that particularly the animals were struck. And so 
here we have uh, glaringly parallel descriptions to the plagues of Egypt. Now, the dilemma with the Eputor papyrus is uh, that the dilemma here is that um, it's dated to a later date. It's dated to the 1500s BCE, about 300 years earlier. And this is a big matter of debate in the Egyptian historical record. And by the way, um, a great source for all of this material is uh, Professor Joshua Berman, Rabbi Professor Joshua Berman, who wrote a book, Anima Min, I believe, uh, the historical uh, 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 setting the arguments for the historical arguments uh, of the Torah and refuting biblical criticism. So um, he points out an interesting point that uh, when it comes to historical records, many of the ancient records have mythic uh, descriptions of events happening uh, that might be supernatural. Now, we believe that the Torah's descriptions are not mythic, that they might be supernatural and miraculous, but uh, that they were divine miracles. But whether you believe that or not, many of these other works, even if people don't take their mythical dimensions at face value or literally, they respect the historical accuracy of the rest of the work. When all of a sudden it comes to the Torah, people want to say, I don't believe in the miracles, and I don't believe in the historical accuracy of any of it. Now, do we have even evidence for some of the miracles of the plagues? Um, So there's a big debate about dating Egyptian history. And they have a list of kings, but the lists are not all consecutive. So even the dates of some of the Egyptian kings, we cannot necessarily parallel to uh, our Western dating. Um, Now, many of these lists and the dating of them are drawn from Manitho. Manitho was one of the main Egyptian historians, but he lived a thousand years later. Yet historians will rely upon Manitho for the sorting out the dates and the lists of kings. But lo and behold, Manitho also describes and accounts as history the exodus of the Hebrews and the Israelites from Egypt, the slave rebellion. So part of it is accepted, part of it isn't. Um, It is questionable when historians will pick and choose what they want to take out of a text, uh, especially based upon their biases. And we know religion can be a very loaded issue. But if we want to try and be objective about it, we do have, as we have seen, we do have... uh, evidence of the Exodus from the larger background picture that the Torah depicts, uh, which parallels what we have learned from Egyptian history and texts, uh, from usage in the Torah, which parallels Egyptian usage of language, of imagery, and even from specific Egyptian texts that mention Israelites or perhaps even Hebrews. So there you have it. Um, for me, it's always fascinating to look at the larger historical picture. Um, And the final postscript is, even the Jews coming into the land of Israel 
there is, uh, archaeologists have recognized that around the 1200s, there was a systematic destruction of many cities in, uh, in Israel, Chatzor, uh, Beit El, and I visited Chatzor, and it was very fascinating because there's a museum across the cities in northern Israel, and across the road, there's a museum. And in the museum, you have these two large blocks of stone with a lion face on the front. And apparently what happened is they found one that was smashed, yet these stones are on either side of the gates usually. And the second one, they only found much later buried deeper. And the theory is that when the Israelites came, the Torah tells them to destroy the idols, idolatrous images that they find, that the local populations had time to take one of them down and hide it, the other one they did not. But even Yigal Yadin, who was a secular Israeli archaeologist, recognized that many of these cities had widespread destruction around the year 1200s, which would have been the period of Joshua entering the, entering the land of Israel. So we hope in the future to address some of the evidence we've found from the land of Israel, which of course would not be from the five books of Moses, but would be from the rest of the books of prophets and the Torah. So stay tuned for that. Have a Shabbat Shalom. And we hope this you found this interesting and has widened our perspective on the historical accuracy of our Exodus story.